Welcome to the Exposing Pseudo-Astronomy podcast for another example of astronomy misconceptions, mistakes, half-truths, and conspiracies. My name is Stuart Robbins, and this is episode 27 for the third quarter of March 2011. I graduated from high school in May 2001. After my first year of college, I went back to visit some of my science and math teachers to say hi and to catch up. As I entered the school, to my right was a display case. Prominently shown there were three folios with large, full-color, and nicely done certificates. They proudly had across the top an elegant logo of the International Star Registry, and the certificate stated, one on each, that a star in the sky had been officially named after a student. A description in the case stated that these students had done well in some national academic competition. That was fine, but it didn't make up for the fact that my public high school had just been scammed out of $150 of taxpayer money. And that's a topic I'm going to talk about today, stellar scams and owning property on other planets. Now, I need to state up front, I am not a lawyer, and I am not using the legal definition of the word scam, nor am I stating as a finding of fact that any of the companies or products that I'm discussing in this episode do not have the disclaimers of their own that state they are not in any way official. More on that later. Anyway, the views expressed in this episode are my own or those of the people whom I quote, and I don't actually end up quoting anyone, and I encourage you to do your own fact-finding, as with all topics that I discuss on this show. That said, in the practical sense of the word scam being where something is presented with big, pretty fonts as one thing, and their three-point font disclaimer at the bottom that you never read says the opposite, what I'm discussing today, most people would likely consider to be scams. Perhaps the best-known star naming company out there is the International Star Registry, a company in Illinois, the United States, that's been on the internet since 1999, but has been in existence since 1979. They are accredited with the Better Business Bureau, and their website is full of customer testimonials. You can purchase a name for a star through their website, and you can request the constellation that it's in, or for it to be near a specific location in the sky, if you contact their customer service. If you buy a star, it will be recorded with the company, and they publish it in an astronomical compendium called Your Place in the Cosmos, which is registered with the U.S. Copyright Office. Their pricing as of March 2012 starts at $54, plus shipping and handling, and goes up to $489, which will get you the Heirloom Ultimate Star Kit that includes a personalized star chart in an heirloom frame, a complimentary personalized wallet card with the star name and coordinates, and of course, your certificate that's matted and framed along with an informative booklet on astronomy. If that sounds impressive, that's why marketing is a big business. The small print on their website clearly states, International Star Registry star naming is not recognized by the scientific community. Your star name is reserved in International Star Registry records only. Then if you search around on their FAQ on their website, they do state quite clearly, We do not own the star, so we cannot sell it to you. This is like adopting the star. Astronomers will not recognize your name because your name is published only in our star catalog, where star catalog is capitalized. 
Now, in skepticism, we are often asked the question, what's the harm? So what if someone believes in reflexology, or if they believe that the world's going to end in 2012, or if they like to take supplements, or as we call them in Boulder, herb? It's fairly obvious in things like medicine. The harm is that people die. In astronomy, that's much rarer, and it's really unlikely to cost you anything if you believe Richard Hoagland and his magical 19.5 degrees, or Velikovsky's ideas about an ancient catastrophe. Yes, the Heaven's Gate cult committed suicide because they thought a spaceship was behind Comet Hale-Bopp in the 1990s, but 39 people committing suicide because they think a spaceship is out there does not come even close to equating to, for example... Jenny McCarthy's anti-vaccination crusade and its resultant body count. I'm not trying to minimize other subjects, nor topics on this show, but I am slightly excited because this is a real case where I finally get to add to the what's the harm question in a topic related to astronomy. In the case of naming stars through companies such as the International Star Registry, the harm is money and emotional investment. For a pretty certificate that starts at $54 plus shipping and handling, that's all you get. A pretty certificate. Yes, they publish your name in a book that they, quote, periodically print, unquote. But let's be practical here. No one but you is going to know about this, practically speaking. And most people think that their star is actually visible in the sky. What they don't realize is that these companies pick stars that usually can only be seen with a large telescope. And then it's another practical issue of when you look through the eyepiece, you're looking at, quote-unquote, your star somewhere in that field of view. It's one of those in there, but you're not really sure which one. Part of the trick here is that astronomers don't help in their whole numbering scheme of brightness. We use what's called the magnitude scale. And in stellar magnitude the brighter objects have a lower number. The Sun is magnitude negative 26.5. Pluto is positive magnitude 13.5, generally speaking, round numbers. So these stars that people are quote-unquote buying are around usually magnitude 10 to 20. They're really, really faint. The faintest star that you can see in a dark sky sight with your unaided eye is around magnitude 6. So you are not getting a star that you can see with your naked eye. And this also gets to the emotional side, the investment and the hurt. Right now, one of the testimonials that's visible on their website is from Carla, who says, My daughter gave me a star in memory of my son, who passed away at 15. Or Christine, who says, I bought a star after we lost our baby granddaughter to SIDS, sudden infant death syndrome, on March 26, 2007. It brings comfort to me to think she shines on from above. Or there's Cindy, who wrote, Received one from Make-A-Wish yesterday for my only child who passed away recently. Now, when people like this come to an observatory, or public open house, or star parties, or planetariums, and then they ask to see their star. Many get upset if told that they can't show them where their star is, where, say, Mr. Fuzzybottom is, because no one recognizes that name other than the company from which they bought the star. 
This has led many of us, myself included, to quietly stew when asked this question, and then just point to some sort of semi-bright star somewhere and say, "Oh, there it is. That's it. That's one." It's either a lie, or you make them feel like a sucker. And when you bought something in remembrance of your husband of sixty years, feeling like a sucker is not a good thing. But the International Star Registry is not the only one that does this, although they probably are the best known. Another company out there is called Buy the Stars. That's B U Y as opposed to B Y. In my personal opinion, the text on their website is deceitful. They do not tell you your name will not be recognized by any official astronomical body. In the answer to the question on their website, "Do I really get a star named after me?" Their answer is in part, quote, "By the Stars is an official star registration company, and all records of stars named and sold are sent to the International Star Name and Registry in Dallas, Texas. Once you have purchased and named your star." The details are sent and permanently recorded in the database. Once completed, a certificate and package is sent out to you or the addressee, detailing the star's location and new name. This name will be the new internationally recognized name for the star under the coordinates specified on the certificate. You can then be satisfied knowing that you or the persons whom you name the stars after. Will join the thousands who have already secured their place in the heavens. That sounds like they're saying it's really kind of scientifically official, when it's not. The disclaimer at the bottom of their website states, quote, "All stars are named and recognized under By the Stars brand name." So there's sort of their kind of disclaimer. That's really all you get. They don't state anywhere that I could find in their fact that. This is not recognized by anyone but them. They just say it's recognized by them and leave everything else out. They also don't answer a question of whether or not the star that you choose to name is visible. Their fact question is: Will I be able to see the constellation? In which they don't say anything about the star, just that quote. Most constellations are visible to the naked eye, though some do require binoculars or a telescope, which. Is wrong. It leads me to wonder if they know what a constellation versus a star is. The whole point of a constellation is that they've been visible as long as we've had written history. People have been seeing patterns in the sky, and those are the constellations we have today. They also state, "We will use your shipping location to pick out a constellation that is visible from your area." Again, no mention of the actual star. So yes, if you really know. What's going on? Then you realize that this is just some novelty. If you don't know much about astronomy nor the sky, then you can easily be taken for a ride. This brings up the second topic of this episode: buying land on other planets and moons. If you do an internet search for "buy land on moon" or "buy land on Mars." You'll come up with many different websites that offer to sell you a deed to property on these extraterrestrial bodies. Several of them have websites that are typical of pseudoscience. They're full of testimonials, as seen on TV proclamations, and long pages that haven't been changed since the early days of the internet. You know the kind. Speaking of which, Richard Hoagland's site is kind of like that too. 
but I digress. These companies offer to sell you property for anywhere from $19 an acre to $70 an acre. One, LunarLand.com, offers to sell you 888,750 acres, suitable for a city, for the low, low price of only $1,155,427.00. Those are U.S. dollars. After your check is cleared, of course. Another one for Mars only charges you $19.99 an acre, plus $1.51 Martian tax, plus $10 shipping and handling. Now, interestingly, many also tell you to beware of other sites which will scam you, but that their site is the only legitimate one to sell lunar property or property on some other planet, that they own the exclusive rights. Several of these websites also proudly talk about the law with regards to owning land. Now I'll preface this discussion by stating I am not a lawyer. If you who are listening to this now are a lawyer, are interested in looking into this, and would like to get back to me, I'd appreciate it. With that disclaimer in mind, the issue at hand is the 1967 Space Treaty, known also as the Outer Space Treaty. Almost every country in the world, except for about half of Africa, half the Middle East, and half of Central America, has at least signed the treaty while most have ratified it. Meaning that any company in the US, Britain, Canada, Brazil, Russia, Australia, Argentina, Spain, Egypt, China, India, etc., is sort of kind of bound by it. What the treaty says that's important for this issue is that no government can claim any celestial body as their own land. So Saudi Arabia can't wake up one day and say, we own Ganymede, Jupiter's largest moon, we're going to go place our flag there, and there ain't nothing you can do about it. Now, granted, they probably say this in Farsi or some other language, but you get the point. What these websites point out is that the Outer Space Treaty said what I just said it said. Governments can't do this. They say that individuals and companies can. Here's where we get into the kind of shaky area of me knowing next to nothing about law. But, from everything that I've read everywhere except these websites that want to sell you a city block on the moon, is that through government is where you can get land rights. So, for example, in the early days of settling North America, you'd go out, claim your plot of land, build stuff on it, work it, and then submit your claim to that land to some local government office, and it would be recognized. Or we have the issue with the whole Israeli settlements. If Israel doesn't actually, quote-unquote, own that land, then they can't grant rights to it to their settlers. Another issue is that many countries have legal requirements that the claimant to a particular piece of land must demonstrate intent to occupy, something that's pretty much impossible to do anywhere off Earth at the moment. So, all of these companies that claim to be selling you land and cite the Outer Space Treaty as just forbidding government ownership are missing the point that it's the government that has to recognize that a particular country owns that land in the first place, and then through that country can you be granted the land ownership rights. This doesn't stop conspiracy theorists. I talked about John Lear in the 19th episode, the one that came out January 16th, 2012. 
I mentioned that he made many, many claims, that I only addressed a few of them. One of the claims that John Lear made has to do with owning mineral rights to the moon. You, you might wonder, who owns the mineral rights to the moon? Did you ever wonder that? Good Isn't question. It? Well, you'll find that 95% of the mineral rights on the near side of the moon and 50% of the mineral rights on the back side of the moon are owned by a group of three individuals. They're Americans. They've had it for 25 years. Uh, and, in fact, this same group owns the mineral rights to most of the solar system. And you can check this out in, in the uh, website uh, or Google Universal Mineral Leases Registry, and you'll find their names. Uh, they're government contractors, some of them. Are they Dr. Dr. Joseph A. Resnick, Dr. Timothy R. O'Neill, and Guy Kramer. And uh, they own all that. Now, how they got it, I don't know, but it's theirs. I mean, did they have to write a huge check for this? Uh, apparently, they didn't have to write anything. But, you know, how just Google weird. it. If I could coin a new logical fallacy, it would be, in this case, argumentum ad internetum. Argument because it must be true, it's on the internet. That's apparently John Lear's case here. Because these three guys put up a website that says they own this stuff, they just happen to maybe have been a contractor with the government, then it must be true. Similarly, Wikipedia has a few other, what I hope you realize to be, humorous stories. Adam Ismail, Mustafa Khalil, and another person's name who I can't pronounce are three men from Yemen. They sued NASA for invading Mars. They claimed that they, quote, inherited the planet from our ancestors 3,000 years ago. They based their argument on the mythologies of the Himyaritic and Sabaean civilizations that existed several thousand years ago. Another story was Gregory W. Nemitz, who claimed ownership of asteroid 433 Eros, which the near shoemaker landed on in 2001. His company, Orbital Development, issued NASA a parking ticket for $20. The bottom line here is that I think most people realize that claiming to own parts of the Moon or Mars or Venus or Kepler-22b or whatever is just silly, unless you're John Lear. But that begs the question, why isn't it just as silly to think that you can buy star names? The only way that stars, and craters actually, something that I didn't specifically talk about in this episode, but which are also out there, are recognized, is within their own company and their own products. They take your money, they enter something into a database, and they send you a pretty piece of paper and maybe a booklet and a star chart with, quote, your star circled. The only official and recognized naming body is the International Astronomical Union. The IAU has very strict rules on the naming of objects, and there are subcommittees made up of subcommittees made up of more subcommittees that discuss this kind of stuff. I'll link to their page about buying star names in the show notes for this episode. One way that you can legitimately get your name on a chunk of stuff in space is to either discover an asteroid or comet, or have someone who discovered an asteroid name it after you. The IAU rules for naming comets are that they're named after the first person to discover it, 
or anyone else who also reports it within 24 hours of the first person to discover it. The rules for asteroids are pretty much that anyone can have their name on an asteroid. So if you discover an asteroid tomorrow, and it's confirmed, then you can name it Billy Lee Joe if you want, although it will also have a number based on the order in which it was found. So it might be 9513845 Billy Lee Joe, or 5193857 Jeff Sykes, or something like that. So, seriously, the bottom line here is that buying star names or extraterrestrial real estate is a scam. Again, when I say that, reminder that by the term scam, I mean in the sense that it's pretty misleading to the public, with people having been led to think that it's now the official name and is recorded forever in existence. This week's question for Q&A comes from Dave R., who asks, I've been hearing lately about the idea that Earth once had two moons, the smaller one eventually hitting our current one at a slow speed and accounting for some of its features. This reminded me of a 1969 movie, Journey to the Far Side of the Sun, which made me wonder if it is indeed possible for a solar system to exist with two planets in the same orbit on opposite sides of their sun. My first thought is that this would be unstable, as even the slightest difference in orbit, especially on the scale of millimeters per millennium, would result in a collision between the two. Is this the case? The answer to Dave's question is that it is an unstable point. You're right. The slightest difference in orbit would cause either Earth or the other planet to move away from that position. The point in question is called L3, or the third Lagrangian point. People familiar with Stargate Atlantis will know about Lagrangian points, that nice satellite at a Lagrangian point. Or those familiar with where our satellites are today know that many of them are at other Lagrangian points. These are because they're generally positions where it's fairly easy to keep your position if you exert a little bit of thrust every now and then. The L3 point was actually quite popular in movies that featured this kind of counter-Earth idea, including one that I think was lambasted on the cult MST3K, or Mystery Science Theater 3000, show. The L3 point is, as I said, unstable, and the slightest perturbation which would happen soon from any other planet orbiting would start that planet, or Earth, moving away from that point. We also know that the theory about this is correct. There is no counter-Earth because we've imaged that region of space. So that wraps up this Q&A segment. If you'd like to submit a question for consideration, please use any of the feedback methods available, although it's probably easiest just to send an email to podcast at sjrdesign.net. The one piece of feedback for this episode comes from Meredith W. from Santa Clarita, California, United States. She wrote in, saying, I found your podcast recently and have been working my way through past episodes. I wanted to let you know how much I really enjoy your podcasts. I find conspiracy theories very interesting, and you do a really great job of explaining step-by-step the different claims and why they are false. I think the moon hoax and the Mayan 2012 theories are my favorite, so keep them coming. Don't worry, there will be more coming. 
I was thinking about the puzzler from episode 15 podcast about the oft-repeated myth that an egg will only stand on its end during an equinox. In your answer to that puzzler, you said that if this were a real phenomenon, then if a person was standing at the equator at noon, then the gravitational force from the sun might have some effect on the standing of the egg. I know this was just speculation, but I disagree. Or I would suggest an amendment that it would also have to be during an eclipse where you would get at least in the penumbra of the shadow. Yes, if the sun were directly overhead, that could, again speculation, offer some force to hold the egg in its precarious position, but if the sun's gravity could do that, then it wouldn't it stand to reason that the moon, if it was not directly overhead, or very nearly overhead, as would be the case during the solar eclipse, then the moon would exert a slightly stronger tug in another direction, throwing off this delicate balance. But during an eclipse, the combined gravity of both the sun and the moon would have a stronger effect, like during a spring tide. My response to Meredith is that, not really. Uh, What people don't tend to realize is that tidal force and gravitational force attraction are two sort of different things. Yes, they both have to do with gravity, but they go as different laws. So gravitational attractive force is based on an inverse square law, meaning that if you're two times farther away from something, the force of gravity is four times less. Tidal forces go as an inverse cube law. So if you're two times farther away from something, then the tidal force is eight times less. So the tidal force of the moon on Earth is about two times stronger than the sun. But the gravitational force of the sun on Earth is about a hundred times stronger than the moon. So it would be a teeny tiny perturbation. But yeah, sure. I mean, again, this was just speculation. So it would help if the moon were also directly overhead. And it's time for the puzzler, where in each episode I ask or attempt to ask a critical thinking-based question based loosely on the material discussed in the main segment. The scenario last time was this. Let's say you're an architect in a reasonable part of the world that is poleward of the tropics. You're designing a patio for a client, and the client wants the sun on the patio from the autumnal equinox through the spring equinox. But because it's hot in, say, Florida during the summer, they want the roof or awning to block the sun from the spring through the autumnal equinoxes. A typical patio in this area is 4 meters on a side, and the awning or roof is 3 meters from the floor. So we're probably not in Florida because they don't use metric. The question is, how far should the roof extend from the poleward side to the edge of the patio? Include latitude as a variable in your solution. Congratulations again goes to Chu on the SGU message boards for being the first and only person to respond and get this right. It boils down to trigonometry, that class in grade school that you probably hated and doodled instead of paying attention in. Basically, the solution is 3 divided by the tangent of 90 degrees minus your latitude. That's about it. And then on top of that, you add 4 meters. So the 3 over the tangent of the angle gives you the distance from the edge of the patio to how far the roof needs to extend. 
and then you add the four meters to get the extra part of the roof. This week, I'm introducing a new alternative segment to the puzzler. Hopefully, the goal is to make it a little bit easier, get more participation, and not just make it easier on you, but also on me on coming up with these situations. My tentative name for it is Fact or Fake. This is a totally original idea that is not ripped off from any other popular skeptical podcast, where I will present you with two to four items based loosely around the topic in the main segment, and you need to figure out which are fact and which are fake. The reason for this segment shift is, again, that the puzzlers are sometimes really, 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 really hard to come up with, hence why I've been soliciting ideas for the past few episodes. This doesn't mean that the puzzler is retired. If I can come up with a puzzler that's good for the topic of the episode, then I'll use it. If I can't, then I'll do this for this new segment. That said, the next episode that's going to have a puzzler, or fact or fake in it, is an overview of the asteroid belt and whether it was ever a planet. If you can think of a good puzzler, send it in. So, fact or fake for episode 27. Item 1. From a dark sky site, there are around 10,000 stars visible to the unaided eye. Item 2. There is documentation as far back as the 1800s with people claiming ownership rights to the moon, though not necessarily to try to sell it to other people for a profit. Item 3. After Galileo discovered the four largest moons of Jupiter in the early 1600s, he gave all the rights to their surface to his local funding source, the Medici family. He did this to secure for their funding. So now, again, this was my first attempt at this thing, so let me know what you think. Try to figure out if any of these are fake or fact, or fact or fake, and send in your answers to puzzler at sjrdesign.net. I'll discuss the solutions during the next Odd Quarter episode. By way of announcement, a reminder that I will be at the Lunar and Planetary Science Conference from March 18th through the 24th in The Woodlands, Texas, north of Houston. There will be a CosmoQuest meetup with me and Pamela Gay, well, Pamela Gay and me, as well as other scientists at the Goose's Acre on Waterway Avenue on Wednesday, March 21st, 2012 at 7 o'clock p.m. It looks like it will last at least two hours, as someone from the Planetary Society, whose name I attempted to pronounce last episode, will be joining us at 8.30. I'll post a link to this in the show notes as it's being organized through the meetup.com website. And yes, there should still be a podcast up sometime near the 24th, even if I have to write it on the plane on the way back, meaning it may be short, but seem long and have some turbulence attached. I do realize that this episode is getting out slightly late. Well, that's because I've been preparing for this conference, where I have several presentations to make. That wraps up this topic for the 27th edition of the Exposing Pseudo-Astronomy Podcast. Thank you for listening to it, and I hope that you enjoyed it and learned a little at the same time. For more information about this podcast, please visit the website at podcast.sjrdesign.net with servers hosted on Mars and Venus for redundancy. 
If you have any feedback, please use the feedback form on the website, send an email to podcast at sjrdesign.net, or leave a comment on the page for this episode on the website. I read every email, and I appreciate the feedback. If you have suggestions for topics, please feel free to make them. But don't make them about Velikovsky. I've already gotten several emails requesting a Velikovsky episode. If you like this podcast, please write a review and rate it on iTunes, and tell your friends and family. <laughs>